Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love your word. We believe down to our toes that it's in moments like this that you do, that, that big things are in the offing for a church who opens your word, who, who examines it carefully, who depends upon the, the power of your Holy Spirit to um, interpret things to us, spiritual things to us. Make plain, Lord, um, uh, your message for us today. Above all things, Lord Jesus, would you stand forth from this text as the, as the king uh, over the kingdom that you are going to unfold for us. Um, we, Lord, we thank you for this morning and I trust that as many people that are here and from the different um, uh, lives that we emerge out of, Lord, that we would all hear us, ourselves spoken to you, uh, rather uh, hear, hear you speaking to us and that we would know that we've been addressed by the King of Kings. May we walk away knowing, um, Lord, that you are are uh, a God who, who gets things done during the preaching of your word. So come and provide us now with the gift of illumination through your Holy Spirit. Lift up Jesus, make much of him as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this time I'd invite you to open a Bible to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, and if you'd like to use one of the red Bibles found underneath the seat in front of you this morning, actually, can somebody shout out the page number? Because what I got in front of me is not a pew Bible. 871? 871, thank you. 871 in the red Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you today, please use one of our red ones. 871 in the red Bibles. Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, and I think I'd like to simply begin uh, the introduction to the sermon will be the text itself. Let's just read through it. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Hear now the words of Holy Scripture. Someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to them, him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul you have ample goods laid up for many years relax eat drink be merry but god said to him fool this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared whose will they be so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward god and he said to his disciples therefore i tell you do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or your body what you will put on for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. 
For they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves money bags that will not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Nearly 70 years ago, C.S. Lewis published a sermon by the title of The Weight of Glory. The Weight of Glory. And he drew those words from the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. And Paul writes, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are unseen, not to the things that are seen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And in this sermon, right at the the outset of the sermon, Lewis has three sentences that have found themselves quoted and re-quoted in pulpits uh, across the English-speaking world and I suspect the non-English-speaking world over the last 70 years. They bear repeating because their self-evident truth is, and, and their absolutely penetrating power is here. It's, it's right here on the words. So first published in 1949, Lewis wrote these immortal words. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of the holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. As you scan over the words of our Lord Jesus that we just read together, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 34, don't you find Lewis's insight here overwhelming? I mean, if not a little convicting, We live in a nation that literally prides itself on the pursuit of a dream. We refer to it as the American dream. It's been variously defined, but I pulled this definition off Wikipedia. It seems to be as accurate as many. The American dream is a set of ideals which includes opportunity for prosperity and success as well as upward social mobility for family and children achieved through hard work in a society with few barriers. That sounds about right. That's the dream, right? The American dream is a set of ideals which includes the opportunity for prosperity and success as well as upward social mobility for family and children achieved through hard work in a society with few barriers. And we might ask, what in the world's wrong with that? And C.S. Lewis answers back from beyond the grave, we are far too easily pleased. 
C.S. Lewis had it exactly right. We are far too easily pleased. That's the big idea today. That's the central point of this sermon. C.S. Lewis had it exactly right. We are far too easily pleased. And allow me to say on the front end of this sermon that this morning's message has precious little to do with what you have or what you don't have. Uh, the Lord has, may have given you a mountain of resources. Uh, he may have entrusted to you a molehill of resources. You may be blessed with a rather lucrative income or you may be blessed to be living on a fixed income. Some of you young people in the room have absolutely no income, right? So I repeat again, the sermon is not about what you have. Instead, the sermon is about what you want. The sermon is about what you desire, about what's in your heart and what's in mine. These 22 verses of Holy Scripture are designed to stretch us. Like every teaching of our Lord, these words are not designed to get us off the hook. These words are designed to show us the hook that we are already on. And I will freely admit that there are no quick fixes in this text. I'm not going to give you boilerplate pat answers for how all of this works out in application. The words of Jesus may raise as many possible uh, questions as they do practical applications in answer. But I'll tell you this, like every teaching of our Lord, what we're going to learn is that his way is not a trade down. It's a trade up. It's a trade way up. And if we're listening carefully to Jesus' words here this morning, this teaching will sing as well as sting. So let's get started. C.S. Lewis had it exactly right. We are far too easily pleased. Point number one. The American dream is on a collision course with biblical Christianity because Jesus says that life is not about goods, it's about God. The American dream is on a collision course with biblical Christianity because Jesus says that life is not about goods, life is about God. This is our third straight week making our way through a particular teaching of Jesus that started in chapter 12, verse 1, and it's going to extend clear to the end of chapter 12 in verse 53. And for two weeks now, we've been learning from our Lord as he's addressed topics uh, in the Christian life such as hypocrisy in view of the final judgment seat of Christ. He's addressed us with the issue of fear of man with reference to evangelism. Suffice it to say, Jesus means business. And you'd have to believe at this point that every one of his disciples' eyes are absolutely riveted on them. I mean, he has their attention. And then from out of nowhere, I mean like left of left field, we read in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, so speaking of the judgment seat, Jesus settled this property dispute between me and my sibling. Wouldn't you pay shekels to see the look on Jesus' face in this moment? I would. Now, notwithstanding the fact that first century Jews often went to the local rabbi for such matters, that's why it's appropriate for him to ask Jesus about this, you have to admit that this guy's request is rather out of place. In fact, it's not a request. It's a demand. There's no request here. It's a command, isn't it? And he's not even demanding equitable judgment. Instead, he's insisting that Jesus side with him. Let's look at it again. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And while this man wouldn't have had any 
exposure, probably, to how Jesus dealt with being buttonholed in a situation like this. We, as readers of Luke's gospel, knows how he deals with folks like this. If you remember back to the first Sunday of this year, Andy Kaler preached the sermon on Mary and Martha. You remember that? Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. In Luke chapter 10, verse 40, we hear very similar language from Martha. Martha barks at Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. It, it's, the, it's almost the exact same thing happening here, but different topic. It's a strikingly similar situation. Jesus isn't con- confronted by a squabbling sibling. So what does he do in this situation? Well, he fires right back at him in verse 14. He said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Notice he doesn't call him friend. He calls him man. He doesn't address him as friend the way he addressed his disciples back in verse 4. And why? Because this man is not his friend. Jesus' friends do what he tells them to do. This man wants Jesus to do what he tells him to do. So Jesus' response is, is icy. It's, it's distant. Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? This guy clearly hasn't been listening particularly closely to Jesus, and so Jesus, in return, is going to remain aloof to this man's appeal. And now he's he's done talking to the guy, but he's only getting started on the topic. This guy has brought something up in Jesus' mind, and he wants to address it. This man's demand of Jesus gives him the perfect opportunity to address the crowd once again, this time in the area subject of greed. So look with me at verse 15. He said to them, I take them to be the crowd, by the way, This verse links with verse 13. He's addressing the crowd now. He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I'll tell you what, if there ever were a culture in human history that needed to hear this word from Jesus, ours would be the one. What Jesus is warning against here is the temptation we all experience to be possessed by our possessions, whether you have many or whether you have little. And we tend to brush this kind of thing off, but according to the New Testament, this is serious stuff. Uh, Ephesians 5.5, Colossians 3.5, both equate covetousness with idolatry. So Ephesians 5.5, Paul speaks of he who is covetous, that is, an idolater. Very similarly, in Colossians 3.5, he speaks of covetousness, which is idolatry. So in other words, uh, the New Testament draws a straight line between the second commandment in the the Mosaic law and the tenth commandment. Covetousness is idolatry. But why? How? What's the connection? Daryl Bach answers this when he writes, to define life in terms of things is the ultimate reversal of the creature serving the creation and ignoring the creator. That sounds like Romans 1, doesn't it? Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 23. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's idolatry. Covetousness. Dare I say the American dream is prone, it's spring-loaded to be idolatrous. So Jesus says, take care, 
Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And to illustrate the point, Jesus tells a story. He tells a parable. The parable extends from verses 16 to 21. Let's read it again. It is, it is amusing. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's notice four things about this parable. First, the the providence at work in this man's life. The providence. Verse 16 informs us that this all began rather innocuously, rather unassumingly, didn't it? It says the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Who made that happen? Not the rich man. (laughs) I don't care what kind of farmer this guy was. There comes a point in the life of every landowner, despite their level best to till and plant and water, they have to admit that they are entirely at the mercy of the land itself. And we ought to say the Lord himself. According to verse 16, God blesses this man. He blesses him disproportionately. He was already rich. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. So that's providence. Secondly, notice the perspective of this man. The perspective. Verses 17 and 18 and 19 bear witness to the fact that this man is constitutionally incapable of getting outside of himself in order to seek wisdom here. You count with me. How many first-person singular pronouns do you hear in these three verses? You ready? Get your fingers out. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I ran out of fingers. I count 11. 11 self-references here. So let's set the scene again. Once upon a time, there was a wealthy landowner. God blesses the socks off this guy far more than he deserves. He sends him an avalanche of material resources more than he can possibly appreciate, much less consume. And he's genuinely at a crossroads with what to do with the surplus. But one thing we do know, that that excess doesn't have a prayer of getting outside of his immediate control because he's not going to let it happen. The man is entirely, utterly, completely wrapped up in himself. And as John Ruskin once observed, when a man is wrapped up in himself, he makes a pretty small package. Isn't that right? So that's the perspective of this man. Third, let's look at the passing of this man. Now, passing is a, is a gentle euphemism, I realize, but we've got to work with the alliteration here. So the passing of this man. I don't know about you, but we learned in verse 5 last week, I've been thinking about this, that God kills people. And I get the sneaking suspicion that's exactly what he did here. I think he killed him. What else can we conclude, given the wording of verse 20? God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So here in verse 20, 
God reminds this man just who it is that owns his soul. And it's not him. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. This man's crops are the Lord's. This man's soul is the Lord's. And you get the sense from this parable, just like Jesus said in verse 5, that he is about to kill his body and cast his soul into hell. So what's the point of the parable of the rich man? From the providence to the perspective to the passing and now to the, the point. What's the point of the parable? Jesus tells us the point in verse 21. Look with me there. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In other words, each one of us, every last one of us, face the same future as this man if we, like him, lay up treasures for ourselves and are not rich toward God. American entrepreneur Malcolm Forbes, a multimillionaire, the namesake of Forbes magazine, was once famous for saying, you finish this, he who dies with the most toys, what? Wins. But one thing's for sure, Forbes died. He died of a massive heart attack at age 70. That was nearly 30 years ago. What Forbes learned on February 24th, 1990, was that he who dies with the most toys still dies. We've said it before and we'll say it again. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses, right? So what needs to change? I mean, what sort of deep shift needs to take place in each of our souls so that we become the sorts of people who are rich toward God? Don't you want to be that way? Don't you want to be rich toward God? The American dream is on a collision course with biblical Christianity because Jesus says that life is, it's not about goods. It's about God. Now we have 13 verses left and not nearly enough time to consider all of them. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to read our text that's yet ahead, make one brief comment of application and we're just gonna drill down on one aspect of this text and it's an aspect that is gonna pay some dividends toward the message next week as well. I think this will be a blessing to us. I know it's been a blessing for me to prepare. So let's listen once again to the words of our Lord Jesus. This is Luke chapter 12, 22 to 34. He turns his attention back to his disciples. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you then are able, not able to do a small thing such as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you of you, little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Second point today. The American dream is on a collision course with biblical Christianity. So exchange your cultural anxieties for kingdom ambition. Exchange your cultural anxieties for kingdom ambition. What do we mean by cultural anxieties? Well, by cultural anxieties, I'm getting at the 21st century American middle-class version of verse 22. What will we eat? What will we wear? Now, I know that in some cases, for some of you in this room, you live right there. And you ask those questions each day. What will you eat? What will you wear? If not these questions, then perhaps you're asking, how am I going to cover the next rent check? Or perhaps it's the electricity or the water bill. For others of you, it may be, where's the money going to come from for the new transmission on the truck? It's not in the budget this year. How are we going to finance the bill from the doctor's office? Still others are facing or are soon to be facing the college tuition challenge. Are you kidding me? The school costs that for four years? These worries take on many different forms, but I'm filing them under cultural anxieties for the purposes of this point. And we could spend the rest of our time this morning with the ravens and the lilies, but I think we might be best served if we cut right to the chase beginning in verse 30, where Jesus says, For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. So what's Jesus talking about in verse 30 with these things? According to verses 22 and 23, these things are food and clothing. For our purposes, rent check, water bill, electric, transmission for the truck, what show the doctor's office, kids' tuition for college. Cultural anxieties, in other words. And what makes them cultural anxieties? You know what makes them cultural anxieties? Because you don't need to be a Christian to experience them. Jesus says it straight out, doesn't he? All the nations of the world seek after these things. Who are the nations of the world? In the words of 1 Thessalonians 4-5, the nations of the world are the Gentiles who do not know God. That's what Jesus is saying here. People who do not know God have all of these anxieties. And the New Testament is crystal clear that the Lord wants us to live free from such anxieties. In fact, the the Bible says exactly that. 1 Corinthians 7.32, Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties so that you will be anxious about the things of the Lord. It's, It's a motivation much like last week. You think you're anxious? Let me give you something to be anxious about. Be anxious about the things of the Lord. Wouldn't it be marvelous if we were to be free from cultural anxieties? Not free, of course, from bearing responsibility for them, but free from bearing the responsibility of worrying about them. Wouldn't that be a gift? Well, in the time that remains, I'd like us to begin to unwrap that gift. Notice what Jesus offers in verses 31 and 32. He offers as a solution to the problem that he sets up in verses 13 to 30. The problem is greed, the problem is covetousness, the problem is idolatry, the problem is 
worldly cultural anxieties over all the things unbelievers worry about. That's the problem. Church is not immune to that. That's why he's warning his disciples. It's conduct unbecoming a Christian. So, so what's the solution here? Well, the solution he offers right here in verses 31 and 32, at least to begin with. For context, I'll start again in verse 30. Luke 12, 30 to 32, Jesus says, All the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You hear him? Hear what he's saying, how he's motivating? If the problem is cultural anxiety, what's the solution? The solution's kingdom ambition. Kingdom ambition. Well, what's that? Well, I think I'd, I'd be among the first to say that in the evangelical world, we tend to play awfully fast and loose with that word kingdom. I have, especially up until recently. We tend to use it in a way that's so elastic, it just empties out any concrete meaning for the word. When we speak of the kingdom, nine times out of ten, usually we're talking about some Christian reality outside of our church, being kingdom-minded. So we might say that when we gather with Calvary Memorial Church for Good Friday, uh, it's the kingdom coming together. Or we might speak of interdenominational fellowship or collaboration on Sunday to serve this coming Sunday or this coming summer as a kingdom initiative. The problem with that is not that it's untrue, it's just half-true at best. And a half-truth, masquerading as a whole truth, is a complete untruth. <laughs> the kingdom of God is far too an important a reality in the Bible to get this one wrong. In fact, if you were to ask what is the most important theme in the entire Bible, the answer is simple, the kingdom of God. From Genesis to Revelation, that's the most important theme. And what is the kingdom of God? Well, for many years in this church, we've defined the kingdom of God this way. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's the kingdom of God. It's not original with me. It comes from Graham Goldsworthy. That's a good way to think about it. The kingdom of God, to start with, is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's the theme of the Bible. So far, so good. Well, here in Luke 12, 31 and 32, Jesus says we ought not to get all worked up with cultural anxieties. Instead, seek his kingdom. All these things will be added to you. If you're not, little flock, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the, what? Kingdom. So what's he talking about? Who are God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing? What would Jesus' original audience have understood him to be saying with this solution in verses 31 and 32? Well, to answer that question, we'd be wise to consider how the word has been used in Luke's gospel up to this point. The first reference to the kingdom in all of Luke's gospel is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, where the angel Gabriel says this to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What's the expectation there? That the kingdom will come when Jesus is enthroned as king over Israel. Now, the advantage we have over a first century Jew is that all of us know before the crown comes the cross. We know that. This was 
the part that was utterly perplexing, though, to the Israelites of Jesus' day. They were not prepared for him to die. If they knew anything about the Messiah, he's to reign and rule over the throne of David in the city of the great king, Jerusalem. Now Jesus knows this about his followers, and so we'd have to fast forward a few chapters, but as he's entering uh, Jerusalem, Luke chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus tells us, or Luke tells us that Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now that's fascinating. It's the same kingdom Jesus is preaching here in chapter 12. They supposed the kingdom was to approach immediately, so he gives them a, a, a plan to slow down. The kingdom is not yet. He deliberately creates a category in their minds for a delay to the start of this kingdom. Finally, in the book of Acts, which is also Luke part two, written by the same author, Acts chapter one, verse three, we learn that after his resurrection, Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples after suffering by many proofs and appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about, guess what? The kingdom of God. What was the topic of this post-resurrection 40-day module seminary class with Professor Jesus? Luke tells us. It was the kingdom of God. And so beginning in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, listen to what the apostles ask him next. Acts 1, 6. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't correct them, but he does redirect their focus. Jesus is the coming king of the nation of Israel. That's not in question in this passage. What is in question is their desire to know when it's going to happen, and Jesus won't tell them. That's a bone he's not, not going to throw him because he doesn't know himself, he says. Not even the son knows but the father. And instead he warns them about date setting and proceeds to, the issue, to issue them the great commission. So Acts chapter 1 verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's us, by the way. The end of the earth here in Mount Minnesota. Now listen to what happens next. The Bible goes on to say, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And don't miss the final verse. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Now, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because when King Jesus returns to establish his kingdom, he ain't coming to Sheboygan. I guarantee it. The Bible says he who ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives, directly east of the old city of Jerusalem, will descend from heaven in the same way that they saw him. That is the Mount of Olives. And the prophet Zechariah tells us as much, the exact same place. Zechariah 14.4 says of the Messiah, On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Guy and I were there just two months ago. Stood on that same mountain. Now, all I'm saying, remember that rent check? The electric bill? The transmission for the truck? What you owe the doctor's office? The college tuition? Jesus wants to give you a bigger vision. Instead, seek his kingdom. All these things will be added to you. 
Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Is there a better antidote to greed, covetousness, which is idolatry, and worldly cultural anxieties? Is there a stronger antidote in the universe than developing a greater passion for the coming kingdom of God in Christ, in real space-time, in Jerusalem, in the days ahead? Now, Luke's gospel has much more to say on this, and we'll do that in the days ahead. We'll look at the kingdom and the coming of the king, beginning in verse 35. It's no wonder that right after he mentions something about the kingdom, he's about to launch into a teaching about his return. That's next week. I heard one of my, preacher, my favorite preachers here say recently, one of the ways to catapult people out of materialism of our time is to preach the great and glorious coming kingdom. Amen to that. I agree. I have no doubt that Jesus agrees too. So exchange your cultural anxieties for kingdom ambition. Let's review. C.S. Lewis had it exactly right. We are far too easily pleased. The American dream is on a collision course with biblical Christianity because Jesus says life is not about goods, it's about God. So exchange your cultural anxiety for kingdom ambition. You know, as great a privilege as it is for us to live in the land in which we do, there are undoubtedly aspects of our nation's ethos and thinking that just don't square with the biblical vision that Jesus offers us. Isn't that true? And today, we certainly happened upon one of those. In Matthew 19, 23, Jesus tells us it's hard for a rich person to enter into heaven. And while money is not the root of all evil, we did hear in our passage before the sermon today that the Bible clearly tells us that the, that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. So I just want to ask you, how are you doing? How's your heart today? Is your life about goods or is it about God? Does your life reflect cultural anxieties or kingdom ambition? 18 years ago, when things were much simpler in our lives, Melissa and I were newly married. First few months of our marriage, we were in seminary and living on campus at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School on the North Shore of Chicago. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Chicago's North Shore, think Edina on steroids, okay? And the seminary is right there in the midst of this. Um, The early days of our marriage, I read a book that quite literally revolutionized my life. The author was John Piper, and the book was Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. And there are scores of passages that made an indelible imprint on my soul early on in our marriage. I can remember laying in bed with her and reading passages out loud to her while she was falling asleep. And one particularly memorable passage here, Piper writes this, listen to this. You can steal to get, or you can work to get, or you can work to get in order to give. Too many professing Christians live on level two. You work to get. Almost all of the forces in our culture urge us to live on level two. But the Bible pushes us relentlessly to level three. Work to get in order to give. Then he asks, why does God bless us with abundance? So that we can have enough to live on and then use the rest for all manner of good works that alleviate spiritual and physical Misery. By the way, that's the meaning of verses 33 and 34 that we didn't get to. Sell all your possessions, give to the poor. Piper continues, enough for us, abundance for others. The issue is not how much a person makes. Big industry, big salaries, they're a fact of our time, and they're not necessarily evil. 
The evil is in being deceived that a six-figure salary must be accompanied by a six-figure lifestyle. God has made us to be conduits of his grace. The danger is in thinking that that conduit should be lined with gold. It shouldn't. Copper will do. I love that. So in view of Jesus' teaching today, I cannot tell you how heartily I agree with that. God's made us to be conduits of his grace. The dangers in thinking the conduit should be lined with gold. It, it shouldn't. Copper will do. Christians needn't ever become infatuated with stuff. We're not to be the sorts of people with a, with a gold rush mentality for many reasons, not the least of which is that in the kingdom, in the new heavens and new earth, God is going to line the streets with gold. We're going to be walking on gold in the new heavens and new earth. We certainly don't need to be lining our lives with it today. So let's be about the mission of being and making disciples of Jesus today. And let's ache for the full manifestation of his kingdom tomorrow. It may be that soon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus constantly redirecting our gaze outside of ourselves. Lord, I, I can't think of a greater distance between the, the rich man, the wealthy landowner with all of those eyes and me's and my's and then the vision of the kingdom, the cosmic kingdom with the return of the king whose feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives one day. The Bible says it's so and we believe it. And so I pray, Father, that you would get our eyes up off of our stuff and riveted onto you. Lord, may we live on what we need and then may we use the rest to bless people around us to the forward motion of your mission, our mission in this church, to be and make disciples of Jesus. Lord, thank you for a teaching like this. Thank you for stretching us in the midst of this um, culture that is awash in materialism as it is. May we live differently. May we be people who live for the coming of the King and use all of his resources accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.